Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of the show know, each and every week, I am privileged to invite a guest to speak with me about the Torah portion, the parasha that will be read in synagogues and communities throughout the Jewish world. This week, we are on the second Torah portion in the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Torah. The Torah portion is called Naso and uh, begins in Bamidbar, Numbers 4, and continues through the completion of Numbers 7. As a synopsis, the book of Numbers began with a census, hence the title Numbers in Greek and English, and we complete the head count of the children of Israel taken in the Sinai Desert. A total, the Torah tells us, of 8,500 Levite men between the ages of 30 and 50 are counted in a tally of those who will be doing the actual work of transporting the tabernacle as described in the book of Exodus. God communicates with Moses the law of Sotah. This is the means by which a wife suspected of faithfulness, unfaithfulness to her husband, is adjudicated. Also in this Torah portion, we find the law of the Nazir, one who forswears wine, lets his or her hair grow long, and is forbidden to become contaminated through contact with a dead body. Aaron and his descendants and the Kohanim are instructed on how to bless the people of Israel, and this Torah portion presents to us what is known as the threefold priestly blessing. The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel each bring their offerings for the inauguration of the altar, and although their gifts are identical, each is brought in an individual way and on an individual day. With me this morning is Rabbi Sai Sanway, rabbi at Temple Beth Miriam in Elberon, New Jersey, since 1998. Previously, Rabbi Sanway served congregations in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and La Cruzes, New Mexico. In addition to leading the congregation, Rabbi Stanway is active in the general community and the extended Jewish community in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and he has hosts his own podcast. Rabbi Stanway, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. See, it's funny. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Rabbi Garten, excuse me. Uh, um, you know, as I, as I was thinking about this, um, uh, things have, uh, I mean, they have come sort of full circle. When I was a much younger person, um, 
let's say 14, 15, 16 years old. You and I first met at Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto, and you were my youth group rabbi. And uh, here we are uh, many years later, um, and you're interviewing me about a Torah portion. Um, and I think that's, uh, I, 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 there's some kind of poetry in there somewhere. Well, but if, I, you, I if we really to- want to be poetic, Rabbi Stanway, Stanway, Stanway is the rabbi of the congregation in Elberon, New Jersey, where I was bar mitzvah and grew up. That's right. That's and right. So it was my uh, congregation of my youth uh, That's right. until I went to university. So That's we right. have a lot of connections prior to this morning's conversation. And it is wonderful to be able to reconnect um, and see all the interfaces that we have with each other. Indeed. Um, and I should mention, since we're being personal, that Rabbi Stanway's wife of long standing is the daughter of my, one of my teachers in rabbinical school. That's correct. And he also interviewed me and wanted to know, how come I only got a C in Hebrew? Right. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, uh, I'm not good at languages. And he said, that's because you had a bad teacher. And uh, then, then I, I, I gave the answer that got me into rabbinic school that said, well, if you're going to be my teacher, Dr. Yerushalmi, I look forward to learning with you. Little did I know that I was going to date his daughter. And he said that uh, um, it, it, if, if I was going to date her daughter, his daughter, I had to take Arabic, Aramaic 1, Aramaic 2. The Talmud is in Aramaic. The Quran in Hebrew, Hebrew 1, Hebrew 2, Hebrew 3, and Syriac. Um, so I have all of that going for me, and I did marry his daughter, and we have three beautiful children. Well, call it kavod, but we're <laughs> not going to conduct our interview in Aramaic or Syriac. Well, okay. I could write it out, though, if you want. <laughs> but I do want to begin with something that may have a real connection to antiquity, not our antiquity, but biblical antiquity. And as I indicated in the introduction, this week's Torah portion introduces us to this interesting class of uh, individuals, the Nazarite. Mm-hmm. Um, Nazarites are uh, separate uh, from the priesthood. And I'm wondering, how do you understand the Nazarite um, and what it meant in biblical uh, Israelite religion and what's its meaning today, if any? <laughs> well, that is... Um... A, a, a multifold question. So let's look at it from the point of view of the of the Torah of the biblical text. The the law for the Nazarite and the customs for the Nazarite seem to pop out of nowhere. Um, all of a sudden, in in this Torah portion, there is a discussion of this thing called a Nazarite, and it's almost as if the Nazarite was already known by this time. And it must have been, the Nazarite must have been known by this time because they don't define what a Nazarite is. So all these people were running around and saying, you know, I want to be a Nazarite. And everybody sort of understood exactly who and what these Nazarites were. So what the uh, Hebrew text did 
um, um, is they regulated what the Nazarite was. So I'm going to go back to when I was in Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, which was Bumid Bar. It was in the desert. And that is where I began to understand a little about what the Nazarite was in the Torah. Because when you look at the story of the Nazarite in the Torah, it, it's just, it, it's like, okay, this is fine, but what does this have to do with me? Well, when I was in Las Cruces, New Mexico, we're surrounded by the Chihuahuan Desert, 7,000 feet above sea level, sand in every direction for a long, long way. And one of the interesting things is that people go into the desert and they have their, for lack of a better term, their spiritual walks in the desert. And this is where they reconnect with nature. Um, and if they're of a religious bent, they will say they reconnect with God. And people can disappear for several days in the desert. It's uh, not always a very smart idea to go into the desert alone, um, but people do, people do do it. People also get lost in the desert, uh, which is also kind of scary. But, you know, when you're close to a city, they don't. Well, that's the way I look at the Nazarite. The Nazarite felt some kind of an impulse to leave whatever he or she was doing, leave their life for 30 days, for a few days, and to live, if you will, off the land, and to, uh, to, to, to have some kind of a, a spiritual quest, because it's clear that the law of the Nazarite is about a spiritual element in that person's soul that that person uh, felt was missing and could only be filled by wandering through the desert and doing whatever they do in the desert. So what are they doing in the desert? They're meditating, they're praying, they're walking, they're reflecting, they're thinking about things, they're getting their life together. Call it a voluntary retreat. So when I, as opposed to the priesthood, right, which was uh, hereditary, Correct. And, and had very specific ritualistic tasks, mm -hmm. you're identifying for us that this category of Nazarite is not really a new religious leader, but in fact is much more individualistic. Not only is that Nazarite individualistic, but if you step back and look at the Torah from 30,000 feet, it seems to be the first person, the first group of people that had any choice in anything. The, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Moses was chosen, didn't ask to be. The priests and the descendants of Aaron were chosen. They didn't ask to be. The, uh, 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 the prophets were chosen. They didn't ask to be. In fact, you can even say that the Jewish people was, were chosen and they didn't ask to be. And so every, every um, uh, choice that uh, is in the Torah, with the exception of the Nazarite, seems to be no choice. People embraced it. They embraced the covenant. They embraced the Torah. They devoted their life to the community and so on. 
but still they were, they didn't have a choice. And this non-choice was reflected in a wonderfully uh, uh, colorful midrash that uh, uh, is very well known that said that when, uh, you know, God went to uh, make the, uh, or offered the Torah uh, to the world, he first went to this nation and they said, what's in it? And they said, thou shalt not steal. And they said, no, our, our society depends on theft. And then anyway, he went to another nation. What else is in it? Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. No, not interested. We, we love our adultery. And so <laughs> they, he came to the Jews because they were the last people to, uh, 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 th- th- that were left in the world. And, and, they, and they said, you know, you know we, we don't know. And so God uprooted according to the story, God uprooted Mount Sinai and held it over their head and say, what do you think now? And they said, you know, I think it's a good idea. I think we're going to accept the Torah. So for those who are (laughs) unfamiliar with the uh, fanciful uh, stories of the second through fifth century rabbis, uh, Rabbi Stanway has shared with us what's known as a midrash, a story that was created Um, to answer questions that the biblical text offers, but never takes the time to directly respond to. Correct. Uh, And so um, I'm struck by that image, not of Mount Sinai, but the image of the Nazir, the Nazirite, being the first person to actualize the choice that God gives them. God uh, says all the time through the Torah, you have, here's life and death, choose life. Here's this, choose this. Uh, identifying for the Israelites that their consequences, if they uh, perhaps choose, make the wrong decision. But here, the, Naz- the Nazarite simply makes an independent choice uh, and Interestingly enough, as you describe it, um, it's not bound in the Torah by lots of legalistic obligations. That is correct. And, and, and as it comes out of nowhere, it, it's almost as if the, the Torah text is telling us that this is something that came into this person's mind. It could be a man or it could be a woman. It could be a Nazir, it could be a Nazirah. And this person... Uh, then takes it upon themselves to uh, begin the journey, and it's really in 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 that image that uh, I find a lot of relevancy, because the the, the the in in a way in the 21st century, each one of us is in effect a Nazareth. We take it upon ourselves to begin the journey, to continue the journey, and to experience the journey. And as Jews, we experience the journey in a great many ways. And there are some people who uh, experience uh, the Jewish journey through work with social action or uh, work with other uh, forms of tzedakah or doing good deeds, if you will. And there are, there are some people who find that journey uh, fulfilling in, uh, in the study of text or the study of esoteric text, even. Things like Kabbalah, 
um, or as we mentioned earlier, Midrash or uh, or Talmud. And there there are some people who who create that journey through music and who find their fulfillment um, uh, within a uh, within an organized Jewish community, or maybe through a camping experience or through an, an organized Jewish hiking experience or in creative liturgy. The, the, uh, uh, the truth is, in, as I see it, is that the, the, the Nazarite uh, has become every one of us. We, are, uh, we, we go out on our own journey and then we come back to the community. The interesting thing about the biblical text in the Nazarite is that when they come back from the desert after their 30-day sojourn and they haven't shaved and their hair is long and, and, uh, um, you know, and it reminds us of all people who go into the wilderness camping, it sure does. Um, yeah. and whose journey is not about personal appearance. That's correct. You it's know, about uh, internal exploration. That's yeah. That's really that's really good, and and you know it, um, I, I like to associate images with uh, with popular culture. Uh, several years ago was a really wonderful book called Wild. Um, um, it was made into a movie, um, um, by, and uh, it was by a woman who changed her last name, and she changed her last name to Strayer, one who strays. And the interesting thing is that she had to get away from herself in order to find herself. And uh, her journey took her um, along the Appalachia Trail. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, the, 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 Pacific, uh, the Pacific, uh, Pacific Crest Trail, the PCT. And she hiked the entire PCT. And uh, in that way, she was very much a, a Nazir. But what's interesting about the biblical text, in the same way that's true with most people who go on these journeys, is that the, uh, the Nazir came back and immediately had to offer a couple of sacrifices. One was a sin offering, and there's no explanation of what the uh, uh, person's sin was. Um, um, but the rabbis suggest something really interesting. The rabbis suggest that the sin offering was because that person separated themselves from the community and the community was not able to benefit from that person. And because they weren't able to benefit from that person, we were bereft of that, uh, of, of, of those, of that person's gifts. And that was their sin. So and, I find so that, that to be really yeah, interesting. I, I find that to, you know, I hadn't thought about that initially. Well, I, I didn't think about it. Uh, this was a classical commentator. There is but, nothing new. Anything I say has been said before. <laughs> as with all of us. But mm -hmm. that dynamic of individualism versus community, the tension it creates has been part and parcel of the Jewish community forever. That notion mm -hmm. that we pray with a minion, with 10 people, um, versus the need that all of us might uh, experience for private prayer. Mm -hmm. um, the notion that when we most require perhaps privacy at times of mourning, the community imposes upon us 
communal obligations of saying the Kaddish, the prayer in honor of uh, the dead in a community or Shiva that we be surrounded. That's a really interesting insight. Before we leave this, I want to ask you about the one aspect of the Nazir which should stand out to almost every reader of the biblical text, and that is this is a category of religious um, identity that is open to both men and women. Yes. The priesthood is not open to men and women. Um, While we today honor the matriarchs, Throughout the biblical tradition, it's always um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The matriarchs, their wives, are not identified as progenitors in the same way that we speak about them in the 20th and 21st century. So while there would be no definitive answer, I'm wondering what your thought is about why women were allowed to actualize this status. And it does seem sui generis. It does seem the only time that we find uh, women um, without lineage. I mean, one could point to Miriam and say she has lineage, and one could point to uh, Deborah and the judges. But here, it's open to any woman. It it is it is interesting, and that's another reason that the uh, that the uh, the chapter. Uh, the pericope of the uh, of the Nazir stands out. Um, why all of a sudden would this uh, uh, w- would would this little tidbit of of tradition uh, be here and so different? Because we, you know, when we think of somebody who goes into the desert, we naturally think of 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 the you know of, of the of the of the guys with the beards. We don't usually associate it with women, but the fact is that the Torah is telling us that women have that same internal drive and, and, and uh, search for spirituality and desire to uh, find themselves by losing themselves um, uh, as men do. And, and it's, it's interesting because if we were to step back and look at that, we could say, you know, we talk about equality. But we rarely talk about spiritual equality. And maybe what the text is hinting at is this thing that, for lack of a better term, I'll call spiritual equality. And the reform movement and, and the conservative movement and, the, you know, the, the, even the, many of the orthodox movements have also embraced what we can call spiritual equality. And there are you know, text studies and events and um, uh, prayer uh, uh, um, groups, for lack of a better term, um, that are egalitarian. The, the, you you want to know what the great tragedy is? The great tragedy is that for far too long, the woman's spiritual voice has not been heard. And this is... A, uh, a reminder that every person has not just the impulse for their spirituality and that journey, but also the right to it. 
And we have this little pericope in the middle of the book of Numbers, and it's almost like a reminder to us. And so that, you know, th that's why the, the, the section dealing with the Nazir is to me so fascinating because even though it depicts a very old, um, uh, uh, right, uh, it, 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 it's so relevant to today. And, and in fact, since all of us have a choice whether or not to stay with our, within our religious communities, and sometimes we wander and we look for something else and then we come back or, you know, we go on our own spiritual journey. Are we not all in a way Nazirs? And it's, I would submit that we are. It's interesting that you remind us of the um, unusual beauty of the Torah, that it took what you suggested was an already existing uh uh, status, the Nazarite, and which may have been known from other cultures, included it in the Torah with their own unique spin, but in addition took one step further and involved women. Yeah. Um, in probably a manner that uh, cognate tra traditions, those that were uh, existing parallel to the Israelites, did not. Um, and then, of course, um, as time went on, the end of Israelite religion and the beginning of uh, rabbinic Judaism placed this notion of the Nazarite, uh, the individual who, who supersedes the community, uh, somewhat outside the pale of what was now being created in rabbinic Judaism, and the Nazarite somehow uh, fades away. That's and, true. That's uh, true. There is one story, of course, about the famous Nazarite, and that is uh, Samson, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Book of Judges. The Book of Judges tells us that this Nazarite um, is uh, to be seen in a heroic status. Right, and what's the difference between Samson and the Nazarite described in the uh, in the Torah, big big difference. Samson had no choice. Right. His right, his mother uh, um, agreed that if she had a child, she'd raise him as a Nazarite. Well, that's not really what a Nazarite did. And Samson's end, of course, was 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 not something that that we uh, uh, <laughs> that we should. Uh, emulate uh, well aspire to you know and having a temple fall down on our heads but he is seen as a hero so i think that the uh, that the later biblical tradition and the rabbinic tradition is still struggling with the idea of a nazarite as do we today and it, i'm going to have to leave it there oh, darn. this has been a fascinating conversation and i hope our listeners will take an opportunity to check out the parashah naso and look up the few verses on the nazarite and perhaps the history of the nazarite in jewish tradition i want to thank my guest rabbi Sai stanway of elberon new jersey for jewish faith and jewish facts i'm rabbi stephen garton you can find a podcast of this morning's recording on iTunes or the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good day. Behold.